Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. The scripture reading for this sermon is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. These are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you? or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not give me clothing. And sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. <clears throat> the scripture reading we just heard, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We hear Jesus saying that we are judged, but he isn't talking about a personal judgment here. He's talking about a categorical judgment. We're judged as a nation. You are responsible for what your nation does. And this was during a time when people didn't elect their leaders and heads of state usually arrive there through birth or through military insurrection. I don't think Jesus is talking about the leaders of the government specifically, but about how nations or cultures behave, especially because the lines of what is religious and what is government were very blurry. Now, many have suggested that this is not really about nations, but about individuals, that this is how we are judged individually. Jesus talks about individual choices elsewhere, but here he's talking about nations. The Bible says that nations will be separated like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. 
And we are given the criteria by which nations are judged in this passage. Notice that Jesus makes no mention of the things that Christians in our culture focus upon when it comes to judgment, such as who really controls the female body, whether there is prayer in school or not, whether the president is Christian or not, whether flags or Ten Commandments hanging up in the walls of public spaces are there and visible, or who should be allowed to marry who. There's no sinner's prayer here in the scripture, or anywhere in scripture for that matter. There is no creed to memorize here. There's no rituals that are obviously necessary as a group to undo. There's no catechism or confirmation class mentioned. Neither does Jesus mention any of the categories by which we typically judge nations. The gross domestic product, the value of its currency, the strength of its military, the standard of living. I didn't hear that in here. Jesus mentions none of those things that are so near and dear to how we think about our station as a nation in the world. But rather, Jesus says the nations are judged on how they treat four different kinds of people. Who are they? First, the poor. Jesus says, I was hungry. You gave me food. You gave me clothing for I was naked. You gave me drink because I was thirsty. Second, Jesus discusses the sick. Jesus says, I was sick and you took care of me. Third, the immigrant or the one who is different, the stranger. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. But the Bible is filled with instructions about the proper treatment of those populations of strangers who migrate from one place or another to escape persecution or genocide. We act like this is a new problem in our, in our world. It's not. Fourth, the prisoner. I was in prison and you visited me. That's it. That's all. How nations are judged is how they treat the poor, how they treat the sick, how they treat the stranger and the prisoner. So how are we doing with that here in the United States? Would anyone say that we are in fact a Christian nation if this were the criteria that we set out? Maybe the question we should parenthetically ask is whether a nation doing these things would be considered Christian by Christians in America. That being said, I'm not sure any nation would ever really measure up to those standards. But these seem to be kind of obvious, uh, obvious metrics, obvious goals. Care for the poor, the sick, the stranger, the prisoner. In fact, I think you could make an argument that we are doing the opposite in our country and calling it Christian. Beyond this, we might it might even be contrary to the very concept of a nation itself to do those things. As long as there are borders, there's a need to police them. As long as there are violent enemies, there's a need for the military. As long as wealth is disproportionately held by some and not others, there's a need to protect and validate what we have inside of those borders. It may be that the nations must all fall to begin to think of a world where it is possible to truly prioritize the poor and the sick and the imprisoned and the stranger. How could this actually happen while being, uh, while being a nation is probably a pretty difficult feat. We should recall that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we should be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, it's impossible to be perfect. It's a goal for which we can never quite arrive. But we could, as a nation, as a people, always do better. We are always moving toward perfection. We could do a lot better. We must do better. We'll never be perfect. But we at least have to make an attempt to do better, which we don't. 
Instead, the church so often busies itself with diversion tactics and whistle words. Just walk inside of 90% of the churches in York County, Pennsylvania, and you'll hear them within minutes. Even worship itself can be a diversion tactic from serving the poor, the sick, the stranger. Even the politics of the word God itself is a diversion from our call to serve the poor. We create neighborhood churches to so often forget who the neighbors are, don't we? We locate churches sometimes specifically outside of neighborhoods so we don't have neighbors, rather business and industry. We design our churches to look upward so as not to see the neighbors around us when we are to look downward and around. I want to emphasize two points of this passage of scripture that we just read. First, Jesus makes it clear that the sheep and the goats are separated, one good and one bad. But who is a sheep and who is who is a sheep is a matter of judgment for God, the righteous judgment of God. In other words, those who favor, who find favor in the world by the world's standards and those who are seen as more productive and useful, who, those who are the sheep of this world are judged by God, by a different standard by God. Who appears as a goat in our judgment may very likely be a sheep in God's judgment. And of course, we all think, of ourselves as sheep with clean white coats and obedient dispositions. But God knows who the real goats are. And that's good news because it's out of our hands. It's not our place to judge others, but it is our place to judge the world in which we live. And it is our place to judge the conditions that our neighbors are in because we are complicit and complacent in our neighbor's sufferings. Second, Jesus is teaching that how one treats the oppressed is how you really treat Jesus, really underscores, again, the fact that Christianity is not a set of beliefs. It's not a set of creeds. It's not a memorized prayers like magic things that happen when you say certain words. The question as to whether one served the poor, the sick, the stranger, and the imprisoned is not immediately answered by affirming the Apostles' Creed or saying a sinner's prayer. Magic words and magic prayers are empty rituals when they're not taken to heart in a way that leads one to serve the least of this world. Jesus does not judge humanity on the purity of our theology, but whether your beliefs about, and not whether the beliefs about your the Trinity line up with the great councils of the church's history, but how you treat the least of this world is how you treat God. If your beliefs don't lead you to charity, you might as well be spitting in the face of God with your fancy beliefs. Have any of you ever gone to those town councils or politicians are having about the heroin crisis? I know at least one of our churches uh, hosted one here in the community. Yeah, when I went to one, I was really taken when one of our local politicians got up and said that before we go any further, we need to be real clear and real honest to acknowledge that this opioid crisis is a crisis that transcends age and ethnicity and economic class and race. And then the others that at the town hall told us about how are these programs to help people in prison and help people when they're out of prison to stay out of addiction, to stay clean, to have their records expunged so they can go back to work. And I thought, yeah, man, we need a whole lot more of that. I'm so proud that our elected officials are on top of it. But then it happened. Mothers of dead children started pointing out that these programs are not really available to prisoners, but they are actually just possible. 
We can have these programs, we are told by the district attorney, but we actually choose not to after talking about how great these programs are that we could possibly have under the law. The subtext that's forgotten to say is we choose not to do it. Or there's a bet, or that there's treatment available to people in prison for addiction. But what this means is that you actually have to pay thousands of dollars to get it, more than what it would cost on the outside. Or that these programs are out there to help people when they get out of prison were available at one time. We talk about them in the present tense, but they were available at one time. They exist in other counties, but not in ours. One of our county leaders, elected leaders, talked about how these things are possible. And then when it was pointed out that the emperor has no clothes, he said, well, it's not a good use of our tax resources. Our citizens want lower taxes, so we can't do this. It's possible. All those things I talked about, yeah, they're possible. But yeah, go convince a simple majority of people in our community to put pressure to put it in the budget. And even then, it wouldn't happen because we're caught up in building a new morgue to accommodate all the more expected dead children from this drug crisis. If you've been paying attention to the news locally, you know that's not made up. The answer is a new morgue. We, we have a way in our language to tell the truth when we're lying. And even when we're lying to give it enough truthiness to convince that we've got it covered. And I'll mention that when we begin a conversation with, let's be honest here, this problem transcends race, we're lying from the outset. I Googled it while I was sitting there listening to the mothers of dead children po pointing out the emperor has no clothes. 89% of the deaths of op from the opioid crisis are of white people in Pennsylvania, based upon the most recent statistics. We can't even be honest when we start a conversation out with the words, let's be honest. The addicts, they're our neighbors. They are sick, they're in prison, and they're often living without a home. How are we as a community dealing with that? We know that the way we do stuff in our country is to blame the poor for being poor. You can almost expect this script from cable news. Blame the unemployed for their unemployment. Blame the sick for getting sick. Blame the prisoner for the prison system and its injustice. We shame women for not being ashamed enough. We scapegoat homeless veterans as the excuse not to do anything. We blame the undereducated for the educational system that has failed them. We blame mental illness when we have a real problem with demonic possession in the soul of our nation as a whole. We blame the other side for being the other side. We blame our neighbors for being our neighbors. Hell, who would ever want to live next to us? During the season of Lent, we know it's overshadowed in our, in our liturgies and our scripture readings by an inevitable arrival to the cross. The, this journey is a journey from relative comfort into danger, from housed to homeless, from acceptance to rejection of life into death. God becomes an outcast in Lent. God becomes a prisoner on death row. God becomes the dying one bleeding and naked on display for all to see. Those who look upon the outcast with judgment or indifference or ignorance or prejudice not only do these to God, but they pronounce their own judgment. To scapegoat or blame the marginalized of this world is an open admission that they have rejected God.
because every time we, like the priests and Levites, walk past the poor with contempt, we know that story. And every time we refuse to hold out our hand of plenty to those who have none, and every time the prisoner is blamed for society's problems, every time the sick becomes the most abject reality no one wants to care for, we're not only rejecting God, but we're pronouncing our own atheism, which is not just any atheism, it's a militant atheism that not only celebrates Easter as a pat on the back and not as a new reality into which we choose life over death. It's an atheism that calls upon the name of God as a convenient joke and demonstrates a life which ends at the cross where we openly judge ourselves by judging God. The good news here is that serving God can happen through simple acts of charity or a charitable lifestyle and not with fancy ideas and prayers. It doesn't even require money, but if we have it, we're to use it. But serving God requires compassion and love for our neighbors. It's, and not just the stranger, the sick, the poor, the prisoner, as a fringe destination of our love, but to love our neighbors and serve our neighbors as a priority in our spiritual life. My belief is that standing for judgment, we are not going to be tested for a biblical knowledge. We're not going to be tested for theological or doctrinal orthodoxy, no matter what the church down the street say. We will, not, we, will, we will not be judged really by what we think, but rather what we do or what we have done. And because these four categories of people who must be prioritized are such a simple notion, but awfully complicated to put into practice, we have to untangle the ways of the world and go against the grain. And that takes belief that this world must be a better place. And not only that, but we're empowered to make it a better place. Believing in God in the oppressed does not lead us to images of God as a king or understanding God as a rich warrior or, or all-powerful and arrogant and alpha male, but God is the homeless veteran. God is the exploited Native American, the scapegoated Muslim. God is the cloistered Amish. God is the migrant seeking refuge. God is the grieving widow or widower. God is queer. God is disabled. And God comes to us as a child, a vulnerable child. God is a single mother struggling to get by. God is the junkie offered sour wine to ease the pain. God is pierced, striped. God's flesh is impaled. Nails are tapped into the hands and feet of God as the criminal being executed. We are taught in this way to think and live by the Jesus of the Gospels. The next step, however, is to do. Go and do likewise. The doing here is the most radical thing to say. When we are to do, we mean serve the poor, serve the marginalized, serve your neighbor. But here's the thing. it means blame, If it means blaming Jesus to love your neighbor, if it means that you need to blame Jesus to love your neighbor, then blame Jesus. It's hard to become, be kind sometimes to our neighbors, and justice isn't fair. Blame Jesus. Put the weight of your despair over serving your neighbors on Jesus. People blame Jesus for all sorts of terrible things in history. Blaming Jesus for kindness is the good news of the cross. And there is the paradox of dealing with the neighbors who we were supposed to love. I can love my neighbor. That's the good news. That's the teaching. 
I can, in fact, love my neighbor, even if it means that I need to hate Jesus to do it. But the only way to love Jesus is to love my neighbor. If we're not walking that fine line, we're not deep, digging deep enough into the suffering around us, or we're not digging deep enough to look at the hurt and the resentment planted deep within us to really love our neighbors. We need to seek out the hidden neighbors who are so often right in front of us to challenge our faith and to challenge our judgment and challenge our self-righteousness as we walk through our spiritual walk of the season of Lent and throughout the year, not really believing that we have many sins to confess. Amen. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.